What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number seven of the Jason Juliet podcast. No real housekeeping this week or big announcements to keep anybody up to date with, so we're going to move right into the guest this week. My guest was Dr. Brett Bennington. I interviewed him up in Long Island, New York, on the tour this summer, and I have known Brett for, I want to say, at least seven or eight years now. So we do have a bit of a history, and he was kind enough to do the show. This was a fantastic interview, and to be completely honest, this was a remarkably educational experience for myself. Um, the, The past interviews that I had done, mind you, this was only my sixth interview, the past interviews that I had done, I there was more of a level of comfort with the guests, and with Dr. Bennington, as soon as we started talking, I realized that... I just need to not talk, <laughs> and I need to uh, I need to spend much more time listening. So this was uh, this was a big learning experience for me because it was the first time that I had sat down with someone that I realized just knew an infinite amount more information than me on everything that we were talking about. So I took much more of a passive role in this episode, but it is just so packed full of awesome information uh, on so many different topics. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm very uh, I'm very excited to get some feedback on this episode because it's a little bit different, but I think you guys are going to love it. But he is the chairperson of the Department of Geology, Environment, and Sustainability at Hofstra University, and I am so honored that he did the show, and I cannot wait to someday have him back on. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Brett Bennington. Okay, and we are live here with Dr. Brett Bennington. Dr. Bennington, thank you very much for joining us. And I'd like to jump right in. You have quite an extensive CV, and well, I'm, I'm old, so <laughs> plenty of things, uh, plenty of time to build it up. So, start me out with your your current position, uh, where you're at, and and what your profession is, what your title is. Sure. So, um, I'm currently a professor at Hofstra University. And I'm the chair of the Department of Geology, Environment, and Sustainability. Okay, so right off the bat, geology, environment, and sustainability. As the chair of that department, what are your main roles? Well, my main role is to administer the different degree programs that we have and to kind of make sure that my faculty have what they need to do what they do. Um, The department covers a broad range of topics. So we started out as a traditional geology department. And then we got a little bit more into environmental science. And uh, about five years ago, we kind of took in a new sustainability studies program that had been started at Hofstra. Okay. And that, that makes some sense because, the, I mean, what does sustainability mean? Sustainability is basically the science of figuring out how do you live in a way that will allow you to keep living that way without using everything up. And, right. And when you're talking about using everything up, a lot of that involves... Uh, resources and the natural world and and critical earth systems that you know sustain the human population. So so it, it's a natural marriage, I think, between the people who study the earth and the people who worry about not using the earth up. Okay, so I know in academia sometimes things can take a long time to change. How long did it take for these departments to all merge into yours and for you to acquire these different roles? Well, it it happened pretty quickly. I mean. 
Hofstra started a sustainability studies program, and uh, it was originally housed in the Department of Geography, and the person who was... Uh, who started it and who was running it decided that it would make more sense to move over to geology and 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 I think that was a good decision and and we've had a very strong uh, program in geology and sustainability ever since and you you can think of it as a spectrum really I mean on on the on the sort of pure science traditional research side of you know what what is the science of how the earth works you have geology um, the environmental part we have a degree called environmental resources that's sort of geology applied to cleaning up the world, um, you know, ensuring that groundwater remains drinkable and, you know, that pollution doesn't get out of hand. And then on the sustainability side of things, you have elements of that, but also the social dimension. I mean, part of the definition of sustainability is, um, you know, how do you create a world that functions in a way that will sustain us into the future and not just a few people, but everyone. Right. So, so correct me if I'm wrong. It's not so much just the geology uh, aspect of it, of the specific readings, but then the in, the sustainability side is more dealing with the systems that human beings are taking a part in and trying to make those systems more efficient and less wasteful. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And and more socially uh, equitable. Okay. You know. So. Talk to me about how you got into geology. Huh. Like, well, like, why geology and not another d branch of science? What, what first piqued your interest in this? Oh, the answer to that question is, is actually pretty funny. Um, so I, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, I was one of those geeky little kids that, that <laughs> loved collecting rocks and flipping logs over and catching whatever I could catch. Right, and I, I was absolutely fascinated by... Um, snakes and, and lizards and salamanders and things. Um, one of my, uh, one of my relatives gave me a big book about natural history when I was probably seven years old. And I was absolutely fascinated with this book. Yeah. Did you and, grow up in rural areas? Was um, no, not really. I grew up initially in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and then, and then on Long Island, um, in, in suburban areas where, you know, you, I definitely had access to nature. And then, and then my, Parents, you know, were good about getting us out into into nature. Okay, but um, Ohio was a good place for for rocks and, and fossils, and I remember collecting fossils when I was a little kid. But when I went off to college, you know, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. I figured I would do something in biology. I was a biology major to start with. Uh, I was really interested in reptiles, and I thought maybe I could be a herpetologist, which you know, somebody who studies reptiles and amphibians, and. I ended up taking geology for a really, really kind of goofy reason. Um, I had a crush on this girl <laughs> who was a geology major, and she was from Oklahoma. Her, her turns out her father and her grandfather were geologists. You know, so I, I was trying to curry favor with her, and, 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 I, and, and she didn't have much interest in me. I, she, I think she thought I was some liberal weirdo from New York. <laughs> so, um, so I decided, oh, let me take a geology course. Maybe, maybe she'll talk to me. And, and I took physical geology, and, and it was really interesting, and I decided, hey, you know, let me, let me take another one. And I took historical geology, the history of the Earth, you know, with, with dinosaurs and everything. And, and I'd always loved dinosaurs. I mean, when I, when I was in kindergarten, I was the kid in the class who I couldn't write my own name, but I could spell Pachycephalosaurus, you know. And, <laughs> oh, and, and back then, this is back in the 60s, dinosaurs were not really a big cultural phenomenon like they are now. They were relatively, really, you know, in the... Um, relatively unknown. I mean, people just didn't, you know, there weren't dinosaur movies and there were very few dinosaur books and, and dinosaur science was kind of on the back burner at that point. Dinosaur science went through a 
a period of, of sort of hiatus for, for a while because people thought, you know, well, dinosaurs were, were these evolutionary dead ends. You know, they, they were these big stupid animals that went extinct and didn't do anything. Um, and, and, and they're really big and they're difficult and expensive to study. Okay. So if, you know, you were an up-and-coming vertebrate paleontologist and you wanted to make a career, you were not going to study dinosaurs. Nobody cared about them, and, you know... I, it I mean, was the you, influence from academia, perhaps, that, that sort of led people off that track, so to speak. Yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't seen as a fruitful area of study. You know, I mean, if you wanted to study something cool, you studied the origin of mammals, you know, or, right. or you studied, you know, the, the, the transition of fish into tetrapods or, or something like that. Um, that changed, by the way, not to get off topic, but that oh, changed sure. That changed in the 1960s because of the realization um, by a, a paleontologist at Yale University named John Ostrom. Um, he discovered a new species of dinosaur in Wyoming called Deinonychus, which Deinonychus is what the, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were modeled after. Really? Yeah. Actual velociraptors, uh, which, which had been known, velociraptors were first discovered back in Mongolia in the 1930s, but, or late 20s, early 30s, um, velociraptors are very small. They're the size of turkeys. Oh. So when Spielberg made Jurassic Park, he, he needed something bigger and scarier than a turkey. I mean, mind <laughs> you, these are turkeys that, that would leap on you and, and you know, slice you open and, and pull your guts out. Um, and in the, in the novel Jurassic Park, that's what they do, and it's pretty terrifying. But uh, right. in the movie, we needed a a big a, a velociraptor that could be big and scary without having to rip everybody's guts out, which would have freaked out the ten-year-olds, you know, in the audience. Right, right, right. So, so Deinonychus, you know, was basically the larger version of Velociraptor, and and Ostrom had done some work studying the oldest fossil bird, a fossil called Archaeopteryx, which had been known since the mid 1800s, and he saw incredible similarities between Deinonychus and Archaeopteryx, and and he he came to the conclusion that, that birds must be very closely related to dinosaurs and were probably the descendants of dinosaurs. And, and, and this has turned out to be true. And, and now dinosaurs are much more interesting because they didn't, they didn't go extinct. They're still here. Right, because and, now we have like some living... So, so, so tell me about this. You said that birds have evolved from dinosaurs. Is this all birds have come from dinosaurs? Like everything oh yeah, that flies? Yeah. And it's not just that birds evolved from dinosaurs. Birds are dinosaurs. Okay. Bird, birds are bird. You know, pick any bird in the world, and it is physiologically more similar to a Tyrannosaurus rex than a Tyrannosaurus rex is to say a Stegosaurus. Wow. Right? Okay. So, so for people who are not familiar with this stuff, so so walk me through. Like when you say that birds nowadays are not ancestors of dinosaurs, but they are dinosaurs. Explain that distinction for those who don't know. Well, yeah, it's it's a little bit tricky. I mean, I mean, dinosaur has a particular technical definition to paleontologists and, and zoologists. And um, the term refers to a particular group of, of organisms that all share a common ancestor. And birds are part of that group. And, and a, a good way to, to sort of think about this is birds are like first cousins to the T-Rex, and a Stegosaurus is like maybe a third cousin to a T-Rex. Wow. So you can't really say, well, T-Rexes and Stegosaurs are dinosaurs, and birds are something else from dinosaurs. No, 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 no. Birds, on, another example I use with my students is, I have three brothers, Brad, Brian, and Bill, and we all have dark hair except Brian. Brian's got blonde hair. 
So Brian looks different from the rest of us, but you wouldn't you wouldn't say, well, he's not a Bennington because he looks different. Right. You know, he's a Bennington by virtue of the fact that that he shares the same parents as as the right. Okay. The rest of us. So the same argument goes with birds. Birds share the same evolutionary parents that that dinosaurs do. Therefore, they're dinosaurs. Wow. And and physiologically they're dinosaurs. I mean I mean they are you know go, go to the zoo and watch uh, a large flightless bird like an ostrich or an emu or something running around. They are they're dinosaurs. <laughs> I mean if you want to imagine what a dinosaur looks like, go big look at, awkward. Uh, actually, or, or, very very agile and 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 very very smart. I mean well not all. Mo- Many dinosaurs, if not most dinosaurs, were not smart, but but some were relatively smart. The the predatory ones, really? Um, yeah, sure. So you so, know, I mean, dinosaur. You know, all the rules that apply to dinosaurs apply to all animals. Uh, you, you're smart if you need to be smart to do what you do ecologically. So if you're a predator and you're, you've got to hunt down your food, um, which is trying not to be eaten, you got to be smart. Um, if you're a big herbivore that you know just needs to avoid being eaten. And one of the ways to do that is to be really big, and another way is to be covered with armor. So if you're a big, heavy, giant armored dinosaur, you can be super dumb. Right. There's no evolutionary need for you to no evolve. There's no evolutionary need to be to be smart. Right. So so take me back on track. So now you became interested in okay. dinosaurs and everything else. There was a girl. It didn't quite. Yeah. So 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 I took historical geology, and um, and I was fascinated by the 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 pageant of the history of the Earth. And, and not just that, but fascinated by the process of how do we figure out what the world was like thousands, millions, even billions of years ago? I mean, I mean, you know, the detective work that goes into reconstructing a world that no one witnessed. I, I found stunning. absolutely fascinating. It's stunning. I, I mean, even in just the limited exposure that I've had watching a couple National Geographic shows, watching them like drill down into Antarctica to pull out yeah. the ice layers exactly. to understand the atmospheric composition, et cetera. The, the, it's, the, it's, 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 it's fascinating. The fact that the world, the universe records its history in thousands and thousands of subtle little ways that we're able to, to unravel and, and take advantage of is nothing short of miraculous. And and because of my, I think my biological background and and my childhood interest in dinosaurs and fossils and things, paleontology was just for me the perfect entry into the history of the Earth. And, the and the obvious evolution of your career, if you will. Yes, yeah, if you, if, you, <laughs> Part, if, you, if you pardon if you, the you pun, you need to go for there. Go for the obvious joke. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, no, absolutely. And I sort of remember, you know, at the end of my sophomore year, deciding like, hey, you know, I'm going to be a paleontologist. Why not? Okay. I'm, it's it's interesting. Uh, I can really get behind this, and, and so and so I did. So tell me about when you say that the universe records itself and it sort of keeps track of its own history. Do you feel that that's one of the disconnects? Like when when we talk about things like uh, the age of the Earth, the age of the universe, when we're talking about evolution, there can be political divides there. Do you feel like maybe it's because the public doesn't understand the actual processes by which we read that well, history? Or what I find is that when people disagree with the findings of science, it's usually not because they don't understand the science. It's usually because they have a cultural or a political reason to disagree. Okay. And and that's why it, it's difficult to convince people to change their mind about something if if they have a good personal reason to believe to believe in, in something else. And, okay. and so evolution is a good example of this, you know, there, and, and the age of the earth. There are, there are many people out there who don't believe the earth is 4.5 billion years old. 
they believe the Earth is 4,000 years old. And it's not that they don't understand the evidence. They just don't accept the evidence. And, and it's because they've, they've got a, a different set of reasons for believing what they believe. And, and, and those reasons are very important to them. And you can't really say, well, I need you to abandon your, your reasons, that, the, these your, very yeah. important things that, right. that mean a lot to you so that you can accept my worldview, even if I firmly believe that, you know, my scientific worldview is, is the correct one. Right. And, and there's, there's sort of no point in trying to, to get people to abandon those, those beliefs. Although, you know, it does become a problem when they start to impose their beliefs on, on others and say, well, you know, we don't want this being taught in school because we don't want our children exposed to it. Well, you know, children go to school and they take science to learn what science has discovered and, and what scientists have uh, agreed, at least for now, is, is real. And if you don't want them learning that, then don't send them to school. I mean, you know, this is... Right. Obviously, like, I, I, one of the purposes of education is to expose children to new right. ideas and, you and, know, have and them don't, challenge Don't them. insist that the wrong ideas be taught um, to protect your children because that degrades the education of everybody else in the classroom. And right. then, but this goes on repeatedly throughout, around the country in different states. You, you get these, these flare-ups where, where school boards or you know, groups of citizens will decide, well, all right, you know, if you're going to teach evolution, you also have to teach uh, some kind of alternative, or you, know, you have to teach the kids to be critical and question whether evolution's real and you know, what's wrong with questioning things. Well... The problem with questioning whether evolution's real is that there's no viable scientific alternative to evolution, and, and there's right. you know so many lines of evidence that demonstrate that evolution is real and that it happened. That you know, I mean, you might as well not believe in gravity. Right. I I remember watching the uh, when I was taking microbiology as a prerequisite for the nursing program. I remember watching that ten day uh, time lapse video of the giant petri dish that Harvard did where they put the antibiotics on the outside mm -hmm. and then tenfold a row in, tenfold a row in, ten, et cetera, et cetera. And they literally started bacteria at like the end zones, quote unquote, if you will, of this Petri dish. And you watched it hit the barrier of the antibiotics and then evolve and then break into the next one where there was 10 times more. And then it would stop and evolve and break into the next one. And you can literally watch a form of evolution happening in real yeah, that, time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. a very real form of evolution. And it's, it's very rapid because bacteria have such a rapid reproduction rate. So they right. go through generations very, very quickly. And you're seeing natural selection in action. There are a few bacteria that have the right mutations that they can defeat the antibiotic um, at least at a certain concentration and they they make it through the barrier and then they repopulate and then you go through that selection process again right it was it, it was fascinating to watch and it was it was uh it was just really cool because the the professor then came out and he was like you are literally watching evolution like live in real yeah, time no, like, that's this is how I, it happens i've never seen that video i have to check it out yeah it's that's, pretty neat i i can pull it up afterwards it, yeah, it's an interesting it's video fascinating. so um you mentioned before children obviously that's you know one of the things that i I'm trying to do with this podcast is to try and get information out there so that people can have it and, you know, almost an educational thing. Mm. And when you speak of children, one of the things that I'm always thinking about is the future of clean air, the future of clean water, and, and not to be like an anti-capitalist or anti-business person, but it, at the same time, 
it seems to me like a general human desire or like a common sense thing that we would all want our children, our children's children to be able to turn on the water faucet and, and drink the water. Sure. That's or, the, or to walk outside and, and take a deep breath and not have to go back inside. That's the essence of sustainability. Exactly. Right. So after what happened in Flint, I felt like there was a big push. There, there was a lot of recognition that was brought to the issue, and then steps started happening. Do you think that Flint, um, in, in its own way, sort of helped bring attention to the cause of clean water? Yeah, of course, um, and, and bring attention to the pervasive problem of lead contamination because, you know, we use lead in many, many different applications uh, for, well, actually thousands of years. I mean, the Romans, you know, started using lead for pipes. Um, yeah, that was the origin of the PB. Is plumbers, there, plumbium, yeah. sure. Plumbium, yeah. Mm -hmm. PB, lead. And it wasn't until the 1970s that, that lead was recognized to be the neurotoxin that we now know it to be, and, and you know, the dangers of lead were recognized. And at that point, we were using lead in everything. I mean, we were using lead in paints, gasoline, um, gasoline you know, to, to improve the efficient efficiency of the way gasoline burned, methylated lead. Uh, so, you know, lead was being introduced into the environment everywhere. So, so now we have, we have a legacy problem. We, we, don't, we don't do much with lead anymore, but it's scattered throughout the environment. And every now and then, you know, you have a situation where lead is, is remobilized and people are exposed to it. And, and you just have to be um, vigilant. And, that, and, and that, that leads me to actually my next question. So as an average guy, you know, I'm, I live in an apartment. I'm concerned that I want to make sure I have clean drinking water. What do I do? Well, Are there you can have it. Yeah, sure. You can, you, can, you can get your water tested. I think, I suspect you could probably take a sample of water to the local board of health and they would test it if you thought, you know, that really? you thought there was a concern. Yeah. Okay. It's generally not a problem. I mean, most places don't have a problem with lead. Most places, uh, people have access to clean water. It's just every now and then, you know, you have a case where... where where things break down. So, so that's actually kind of encouraging because you, you never know, you know, you turn on the news and it's like, everything's terrible everywhere. And, well, and people, I mean, I could say a couple of things about this. One is that, that everybody wants access to clean water. So there's a, there's a huge, uh, consensus, public on, consensus that, yeah. on clean water. Um, now the present, uh, EPA is, is rolling back regulations relating to clean water to uh, some extent. Um, you know, because you can always get into the question of, well, how clean does the water have to be? Uh, at what point are you making it cleaner than, than it needs to be because it doesn't pose a health risk? And unfortunately, for a lot of things that might end up in water, we don't really know what the safe levels are. And, and right. so it, it becomes a question of, do you err on the side of caution? Do you err on the side of the consumer and set very low levels? Or do you err on the side of industry and, and set higher levels. And, and there isn't a scientific resolution to that question. I mean, the, the, well, there is in a sense that the science can try and, and determine, you know, at what levels do certain types of harm come into play. But it, it usually there isn't, there isn't a sharp sort of nothing happens and then all of a sudden something happens. So, you know, it becomes a policy decision. Right. It it's becomes, not, it's not a black and white. There's right, a spectrum right. through which it increases right. and increases. So, you know, yeah. How much, you know, how much lead, exposure is acceptable, how much arsenic exposure is acceptable. It, 
So now yeah. is it is this a similar case it, with it the air? It becomes a probability issue. Okay. Is is this similar with the with the air? So if we're talking about clean air, it's the same thing where there's this spectrum of how much is too much, or, or is this a different scenario? It's it's a, it's a, it's the same scenario, but but I think uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the air could be a lot cleaner than it is. So it would the, be better if the air was a lot cleaner so, than it is. We're we're starting to discover how much of an impact particulates in the air have on on human respiratory health and asthma and so things like that. For those who don't know, what is a particulate? A little tiny piece of something, a little tiny piece of soot or dust or, you know. Which can come from anything. Which can come from tiny particles of dust being blown around. But, you know, a lot of industrial sources create particulates and car exhaust and diesel exhaust and things like that. So. And, and you're, so the air concerns you right now far more than the water. Well, again, it depends on where you are. So on Long Island, for example, okay. right, Long Island has one of the best water supplies in the, in the world. Really? Yeah. Well, why is that? Well, because we're, we're lucky enough to be sitting on top of um, a pile of, of sand. Well, other things, but largely sitting on top of a pile of sand that's somewhere between 200 feet and 2,000 feet thick. And so there are trillions of gallons of fresh water sitting under Long Island that we can access by, by putting in public supply wells. Um, we have a fairly uh, wet climate, so that water is recharged on a regular uh, basis. So we, we have this abundant water supply, and as long as we manage it, it's always going to be there for us. Uh, we're not really in danger of using it up so much. Um, and, and we are we are using it sustainably. The the big problem with our water supply on Long Island is just making sure that contamination doesn't get into the water supply. Now there's lots of legacy contamination. Um, there's ongoing threats of contamination from you know the fact that we have septic systems and we're we're introducing nitrogen uh, pollution into the groundwater. But these are these are manageable problems. I mean uh, you know if we start to detect a toxin in one of our public supply wells, then you shut the well down for a little while and you install a filtration system or, you know, you install some system to remove the contaminant. And then you, you hire hydrologists to go in and, and figure out where the contaminant is coming from and figure out how to pump it out and get rid of it and, and clean it up. So, you know, we have the technology, um, the expertise to deal with these problems. And, and once we recognize them, we can, we can deal with them. So on Long Island, we have, you know, really clean tap water. I mean, okay. I drink tap water. I don't pay, I don't buy bottled right. water. I drink, it's, it's, it's clean. The source is, is pretty clean. And, and even if the source has problems, they test for hundreds and hundreds of contaminants at the well, you know, at the distribution point. And if they detect anything that's problematic, they fix it. So I, I, I know where my water is coming from when I turn on the tap. I know it's been tested. I do not know that when I open a bottle of Dasani. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that water came from. I don't know if right. anybody looked at it. So, you know, and, and, and the thing about water is, you know, water, water is coming from these point sources where we extract it and it's distributed to people. So we can treat it. We can make sure it's clean. You can't really do that with air. You know, they, everybody's sort of breathing this pool of air and, and it's not like we're distributing the air and we can. So with, with air, we're, I think there's a much greater uh, onus to, to try and prevent it from becoming polluted. But for most of, you know, the history of the, of the human race, we've sort of had this attitude that the atmosphere is just sort of this unlimited place. You know, anything you, you dump in the atmosphere is just going to go away. You know, it's just going to dilute away and disappear, and it's not a problem. But we've discovered that, in fact, human beings um, are having an enormous impact on the atmosphere, and, and not a good one from our, from our point of view. 
So talk to me a little bit about that, like when we're speaking about air. Now, we just mentioned particulates, and you were talking about the carcinogen- carcinogenic effects of those. And Well, it's... it's- you know they irritate your your lungs and and your body reacts to them and and I think you know asthma asthma is a huge public health problem and my I brother's think, got asthma yeah I think a lot of the problems that people have with asthma are caused by breathing polluted air dirty air dirty air yeah so so in addition to those particulates now you've mentioned that you know the humans think that what we put in the air can just dissipate and disappear as you just said Talk to me about CO2, because that's obviously the big one that I think it's the most press as far as how the atmosphere is beginning to heat up and the greenhouse gases, et cetera. I mean, we dump a lot of stuff in the atmosphere. And uh, so, you know, smoke and and exhaust and particulates. Um, There are lots of volatile chemicals that that we use. You know, gasoline is an example of a volatile chemical. You know, every time you pump gas, some of the gasoline evaporates and goes into the air. Right. And there are places where you have you know, uh, volatile compounds that were used in the past that have been spilled into the soil and vapors work their way out of the soil. And that, that's how in the environmental industry, actually, that's a, a big hot topic right now is uh, soil vapors. And, and, you know, soil vapors can accumulate in the basement of a building to levels that are toxic and or potentially toxic and people don't know they're there. So, you know, we have we have pollution that you might think of as groundwater pollution that's also, you know, getting up into the air particularly in industrialized areas. And then, and then you have, you know, pollutants like um, hydrogen sulfide, you know, which comes out of smokestacks of power plants and, and leads to problems with acid rain. Um, pollutants like chlorofluorocarbons, which uh, get up into the uh, stratosphere and break down the ozone layer, which is protecting us from, uh, from ultraviolet light. And then carbon dioxide, probably the single most, um, well, definitely the single most abundant atmospheric pollutant that's produced by human activity is carbon dioxide. It's a byproduct of burning things. So whether you're burning wood or oil or natural gas, propane, whatever, you're producing carbon dioxide. As the byproduct. As right. the byproduct. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, when carbon compounds combine with oxygen, they release heat and, and you make carbon dioxide. And we have been for the last uh, 150 years, well, actually for much longer than that, but for the last 150 years, the rate at which we have been adding um, carbon dioxide to the atmosphere has been increasing more and more and more. And and in the 1950s, the rate started to become exponential. Right. We've put more carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. We've, We've raised the level of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere at this point in our history to a higher level than it's been at any time in the last 200,000 years and, and possibly do, within the last 2 million years. And how do we know that? Oh, well, that's, that's the science of what we call paleoclimatology. And, and it turns out that we, we, we can measure how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere in the past because we have these big ice sheets over Greenland and Antarctica. And the ice builds up layer by layer, year by year. And, and we've been able to drill down through those ice sheets, which are over a mile thick. So the, the ice wow. sheet over Greenland... Is, uh, is a mile thick. The ice sheet over Antarctica is almost, in places, almost two miles thick. So you can wow. drill down and, and you can sample air bubbles that got trapped in the, in the snow as it compacted into ice and, and analyze the gases in those air bubbles. And so we have a very good record of, of carbon dioxide in this atmosphere. We see carbon dioxide levels rise um, when you go from an ice age to a, a warm period between ice ages. And then carbon dioxide levels fall when you go back into an ice age. And I, I mean, that makes God, sense we, consistently with. Yeah, it's I mean, we spend a whole semester talking about 
how the Earth's climate system works. But right. suffice it to say that that there are little little anomalies in the Earth's orbit that cause um, the distribution of of solar heating to shift from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere on a on a sort of multi thousand year scale and. Once these little shifts happen, they, they bring into play feedbacks that cause the Earth's climate to either start to cool down and you go into an ice age or start to warm up. And one of these, or, well, and, and some of these major feedbacks involve adding or removing carbon dioxide from the Earth's atmosphere. So it's the, the levels of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere that basically create the thermostat that controls the climate of the Earth. And, and there are ways of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere basically by burying lots of organic material um, under glaciers. And then if you start to melt the glaciers, you release that organic material. You, you basically uncover it. It oxidizes. It turns to carbon dioxide. And you put the carbon dioxide back in the atmosphere. So the, the, the Earth's natural climate system has this way of sort of shifting from a cold condition to a warm condition and back to a cold condition by shuffling carbon dioxide in and out of the atmosphere, sort of from the biosphere to the atmosphere and back into the biosphere again. And so that shuffle is what is being interrupted by human activity and dumping more so, of this in the air. So what, what humans have done to disrupt the, the normal sort of cycle of ice ages, we do a couple of things, actually. And so it's it looks like we started out disrupting the, the normal cycling of carbon dioxide into and out of the atmosphere way back um, five or 6,000 years ago. Really? Yeah. And any, any, you want to guess what we were doing? Uh, farming? Exactly. We were farming. Did so I get that right? You did. Wow. You okay. got that exactly okay. right. <laughs> so we, um, there, there's some really compelling evidence that's uh, come to the light. There's a climatologist uh, named uh, Ruddeman who's written on this uh, and looking at trends in, in, in methane and carbon dioxide coming out of the last ice age versus coming out of the previous ice ages. And um, normally, by the time you're done with an ice age, greenhouse gas concentrations start to drop because you're, you know, by the time you warm up enough to melt all the glaciers and get out of one ice age, you're starting to slide into the next one. So the, 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 warm, <laughs> the warm intervals are, are relatively short. They only okay. last a few thousand years before things start to cool down again. It takes a long time to build up an ice age. It takes a short period of time to stop it. And, okay. then, and then a new one starts. So normally you would see greenhouse gas levels starting to fall um, pretty much right after the, you know, deglaciation, the end of the ice age. But after the last ice age, they start to fall and then they start to rise again. And they start to rise at about the time that you, st you start finding archaeological evidence that humans are farming. Okay. And so, well, what, what does it mean that we're farming? We're, we're cutting down vegetation. We're clearing forests. Right. Okay. And that puts carbon back into the atmosphere because if you cut down a forest, the plants that, you know, the trees that you cut down decay and, and the carbon in the trees oxidizes and goes into the atmosphere. And correct me if I'm wrong. One of the other big things that, that I believe I remember learning is that the earth almost has, it breathes every year between the northern oh, yeah, and southern sure. hemispheres. So, with, the, with the forests, they're also, you know, people forget trees and, and other vegetation, they take in carbon dioxide and they release oh, yeah, oxygen yeah. so the opposite of you know the yeah. flora and fauna so if, you, if you look at if you look at the the graph that shows carbon dioxide levels in the earth's atmosphere from when we started measuring them in in the 1950s you know directly measuring them by sampling the atmosphere in the 1950s this guy named keeling started 
collecting carbon dioxide at a weather station on, on Mauna Loa in Hawaii, you know, sticking way up in the atmosphere. And, and what you see, you, you know, you see the, the rise in carbon dioxide from the 1950s to the present, but it's not a steady rise. It's, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up, you know, little, little zigzags, little, right. little sawtooth. And, and that up and down is, is an annual cycle. And the carbon dioxide levels drop a little bit in the spring and summer because plants grow like crazy in the northern hemisphere and they take up all this carbon dioxide and they turn it into plant. And then come the fall, um, it gets colder and the, you know, the leaves fall off the trees, the plants die, and they oxidize and the carbon goes back into the atmosphere. And it's a cycle dominated by the northern hemisphere because most of the world's land at mid-latitudes and high latitudes is in the northern hemisphere. There's very little land at high latitudes in the southern hemisphere. Right. So you you just, you know, autumn in the southern hemisphere is affecting, you know, a part of the tip of South America. You know, they're not having autumn in Australia. Australia is is mostly in, you know, the, the arid climate zone. Right. Uh, and the tropics are green all the time. So so the, the seasonal change in carbon dioxide is being driven by all of this land in the northern hemisphere. Um, but anyway, so so we start farming... And we start clearing land for crops, and, and a, an acre of grain contains much less biomass than an acre of forest. So you cut down a forest and you replace it with, with a field of grain, and a lot of carbon is able to go back into the atmosphere as carbon I dioxide. I see. You start domesticating animals like sheep and cattle, and they produce a lot of methane. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Right. right. I, I remember that that's supposed... Much more powerful more, than carbon yeah, much, dioxide, but right? It's much better at, at trapping heat than carbon dioxide. Okay. So you're, you're putting methane in the atmosphere. Now, methane doesn't—carbon dioxide lasts for a long time in the atmosphere. Methane is relatively unstable. It, it oxidizes, and it turns to carbon dioxide anyway. So, okay. you know, so as long as you keep producing methane, methane is acting as a very potent greenhouse gas. Um, even if you stop producing methane, the methane that, that's there is going to turn into carbon dioxide, which is still a greenhouse gas. Huh, so we've I didn't got, know that. So we're—, we're, we're we're clearing, we're, we're raising fields of grain, presumably. We've got domesticated animals, and we are um, farming rice. And rice produces a lot of methane because you have flooded rice paddies, and the organic material that falls to the bottom of the rice paddies um, decays anaerobically um, in, the, in the sort of stagnant water, and that produces methane. So uh, rice production is probably you know, one of the big, historically, one of the big methane producers. Wow. I had no idea. I didn't know that. And if, if you look at the, the sort of detailed record of greenhouse gas, you know, for the last 5,000 years, every time there's a big human catastrophe, like a plague or something, greenhouse gas levels fall. Because, huh. you know, you wipe out a, a significant portion of a relatively small population and people aren't farming as much. And wow. so the, the fields go back to forests for, for, you know, 100 years or so. So you mentioned... And greenhouse gas levels... Um, fall, right? That that carbon dioxide is being taken out, but then you know we repopulate and we cut. Yeah, the same cycle starts all over again. Start yeah. the same cycle all over again. But it's entirely possible that we actually disrupted the Earth's climate system enough, starting five thousand years ago, to fend off the the next ice age. Really, which is a good thing, right? So that was that was actually good. So you know, human activities. Human production of greenhouse gas is probably what kept the climate of the Earth um, at a at a very stable, optimal state for the human species 
through most of our history, and, and geologists and, and climatologists talk about the Holocene climatic optimum, which is basically, you know, the last 8,000 years when the Earth's climate has been pretty good for people, and, and we've thrived. And that may be our own doing. You know, we, we didn't mean to do it, but we did it. So our civilization, what was once our salvation and might have stabilized the climate, is now possibly right. turning into our damnation. Right. And, and so what happened was, in the, in the, starting in the 1700s, we discovered fossil fuel. Right. Um, and a way to think about fossil fuel is uh, the Earth has been making fossil fuel— for, let's say, 300 million years. Okay. Just because, and I say 300 million years because the oldest mineable coal deposits date back to about 300, 350 million years ago. Hmm. Okay. And oil and natural gas tend not to stay that long in the Earth's interior. Eventually, they because... They naturally break down. Because, well, they're, they're liquid. All right, so oil eventually will break down if, if it's buried deep enough into natural gas, and natural gas being a gas, will tend to find its way out. Now, of course, we've actually, because we're very clever, we figured out how to tap into um, supplies of natural gas that otherwise would be sort of locked up in the Earth's interior forever, and that's called fracking. Right, okay. So what we're doing when we're fracking is we're going after natural gas that's, that's locked up in, you know, in very, very impermeable rocks that are very, very old, and we're breaking the, cracking the rocks and releasing the gas. Okay. Um, anyway, so, but, but even, even those, you know, those deposits are, I think, the oldest rocks that we've been fracking are generally 400 million years old. So let's, let's, just, let's just say for 500 million years, just to, I like even numbers, <laughs> um, the biosphere has been photosynthesizing, right? So plants and bacteria... Algae have been photosynthesizing. They've been basically taking the energy from the sun, solar energy, using it to create glucose through the process of photosynthesis. And that involves taking some water, taking some carbon dioxide, splitting the water molecule with the energy from the sunlight, and using the byproducts of that to react with the carbon dioxide and knit it into a molecule of glucose which is a, you know, a molecule of plant, an organic molecule. Right. So plants are, are little factories that make organic molecules out of sunlight, and trapped in the chemical bonds of those organic molecules is the energy that was originally the sunlight. And usually what happens is the plants are then eaten, or they decay, they die and decay, and the organic matter recombines with oxygen, and carbon dioxide is released, and energy is released, and you complete the cycle. So if, if all organic matter that was ever made by photosynthesis was allowed to recombine with oxygen and turn back into carbon dioxide, then all of the solar energy trapped by photosynthesis would be released as heat energy back into the, you know, into the, the surface environment of the Earth, and it would all be a wash. It would all be a balanced cycle. But what happens is, because of the formation of rocks and geology, is that there's always a little bit of, of organic carbon that gets buried. It gets buried away from oxygen, and it doesn't get to decay, and it doesn't get to turn back into carbon dioxide, and it holds on to its energy. And so for 500 million years, the Earth has been quietly socking away organic carbon in the crust of the Earth, 
um, and and the energy associated with that organic carbon in the, in the form of glucose. In the form of in the well, well, not you know the plants take the glucose and they convert it into you know cellulose and you know the the material that plants are made out of. And and when the plants die, you know some of the plant material might you know decay, but but some of it remains. And and basically, if if plants are able to build up and then be buried without decaying, they turn into coal. If algae sinks to the bottom of the ocean in the mud, and then that mud gets buried over thousands and thousands and millions of years, the algae will break down and the, the lipids, the oils in the algae, become the raw material of, of, of crude oil. Okay. And crude oil will eventually, if it's buried deep enough and heated up enough, break down into methane. So coal is a product of plants, of buried fossilized plants, basically, and, and oil and natural gas are the buried remnants of algae. Wow. So the Earth, so for 500 million years, the I never Earth, knew that separation. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's dinosaurs have nothing to do with coal, coal or oil. They're they're irrelevant to this. But <laughs> people think oil comes from dinosaurs because of Sinclair Gasoline, which is the gasoline company that had the big green brontosaurus as their logo. <laughs> um, so the point is to 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 not drag this out interminably. Um, for 500 million years, the Earth has been socking away um, stores of unoxidized organic carbon in its crust. And starting in the 1700s, we figured out that this stuff was there. And it's a gold mine. It's, it's, you know, coal, oil, and natural gas are concentrated sources of energy. And the, the limitation on, on the growth of the human population has always been energy. You know, energy to do work, energy to, to plow fields and grow crops and and, and when we discovered fossil fuels, we discovered this, this relatively inexpensive, easily accessible source of almost unlimited energy, and it allowed the human population to explode. Wow. Um, because we could create technologies and, and farm and, and feed more and more and more people. And the more people we had to feed, the more fossil fuel we tapped into. And then, you know, we discovered that, that oil could actually be used to, to make nitrogen fertilizers. And that led to something called the Green Revolution. So just when it looked like, you know, the human population was going to reach a point where we wouldn't be able to feed anybody, we figured out how to feed everybody. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this growing population um, demand, needs energy. Need, you know, we need energy to produce the food. And as we become a more technological and a, and a wealthier civilization, say what you want about the world, the number of people, the percentage of, of the world's population that are living in, in abject poverty is lower now probably than it's ever been in the history of the human civilization. Right. Um, and, and, I and, think it's less than 10% now yeah, in extreme poverty. The, 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 the aim of, of our modern industrialized society is to try and bring everybody up into into economic prosperity and that's right. a you know that that requires tremendous amounts of energy right and you know we've always worried about running out of fossil fuel but you know we've we've got hundreds of years of fossil fuel sitting in the crust of the earth and maybe more because we get better at finding it i mean i'm a geologist and we're really good at finding <laughs> fossil fuel it's sort of what we do and and we're clever people you know and and right. we keep we keep finding new ways to get the stuff um, uh, Bill, you know, Bill McCribbin, he's, the he's the, I do not, he's, um, an activist for, you know, trying to stop climate change and, and, uh, 360.org, I think was his, oh. his, um, okay. He started that. I saw him, I saw him give a talk once, uh, 
at a Geological Society of America meeting. And he was very funny. He said, he said basically, you, you people need to stop finding oil. And he said, and if you do find some, don't tell anybody. Right. <laughs> just keep it to yourself. Right. Just keep it to yourself. Um, you know, and, and so, I mean, I mean, fossil fuels have been a boon to human civilization. We, you know, we, we wouldn't have this civilization without them. But we've come to the realization that there's a price to fossil fuels. And the price is that we are changing the Earth's climate um, and driving it to a state which is not a good state for us. Now, that's one of the main things that I wanted to talk about is that one of the things that concerns me, and of course I don't have the perspective that you do, which is why I wanted to have you on, but one of the things when I stood, stood back and looked at everything when they talk about the sea level rises, when they talk about the fact that these extreme weather events are going to become more frequent and more extreme, I immediately start thinking of all the coastal cities. I immediately start thinking of the, I mean, there's a, what percentage of it, uh, of humans live in 30, what was 30%. It, 30% is it yeah. what, like within coastal areas or floodplains yeah, or within a mile of the coast or something like that. So do you find the same concerns? Like when you think about climate change on a, like a broad grand spectrum, or at least what's going to happen, like the first major problem that we're going to start having, do you, do you go to the flooding and like mass human migration? Or do you think something else is going to happen? Like, like where do you see this sort of butting up into reality where it's going to be like, okay, everybody, like we need no, to do something. It's, it's already happening. It's been happening. I mean, you have... You have an increase in the in the number and severity of droughts. You have an increase in the number and severity of extreme weather events, tornadoes, um, violent rainstorms. If you're not really sure that climate change is a problem, you need to go on the web and find um, the website for an insurance company called Munich RE. Munich RE is one of the world's largest insurance companies. Munich RE. Yeah, Munich RE. Okay. And Munich RE, they don't write homeowners policies. They insure insurance companies. They're reinsurers. Oh, right? okay. So if you're prudential, right, you take out a policy with Munich RE so that if, you know, in a, in a given year, you have to pay out more in damages than you took in in, in um, premiums, you're covered. They've got right? you, right. And Munich RE does an annual um, sort of review of, the, you know, the year in natural disasters. And they produce these wonderful graphics that show the, um, you know, the number of disasters, you know, in different categories from year to year to year. And they have four categories of natural disaster. And, and I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what they call them. But, but basically, three of the categories are related to the atmosphere. So you have, like, um, extreme weather events. You have... Uh, droughts and fires, um, you have, uh, like hurricanes and, you know, major storms. Um, and then the fourth category are volcanoes and earthquakes. Okay. Right. And if you look at, you look at their graphs, you know, from like, you know, 1950 to 2015 or, you know, 1970 to, um, 2018 of, you know, how many, of these different kinds of disasters, the, the graphs increase steadily, right? I mean, I mean, not you know, there's ups and downs, but but the trend right, is similar definitely, to the CO two. You know, ups and downs, right? the closer you get to the present, the more disasters there are, and it doesn't matter if you look at the whole world, if you look at just the United States, um, with one exception, 
the category that's the exception are the earthquakes and the and the volcanoes. They, you know, some years you have more disasters related to earthquakes and volcanoes. Some years you have fewer, but there's no upward trend. Right. So everything everything that's related to the to the Earth's atmosphere, which is impacted by climate, is increasing in intensity of damage, in number of dollars paid out in damages, in frequency, but the things that are not related to the atmosphere, the things that are driven by the internal processes of the Earth, show no trend. So the atmosphere is becoming more violent. It's becoming more active. So... Because it's, because it's got more energy. It's warmer. Where do you see this really coming to the head? Well, it's... I mean, uh, I mean... I mean, I know that we're obviously seeing the effects from it, like you just said. I, I, I mean, I don't mean to... Uh, to sort of reiterate the same question, but do do you share the same fears that I do that we might be really in for some serious disasters? Sure. I, mean, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be expensive. People are gonna die. Um, is it gonna wipe out human civilization? No, right? No, but um, you know, our whole our whole infrastructure, our whole civilization is built on the climate that existed for the last one hundred years. The, you know, the climate that existed through most of the 20th century. If we change that climate we drive it to a, a different state, um, nothing's going to fit anymore. So we're going to be, you know, 30% of the population is going to be living where the ocean is trying to be because of sea level rise. And it's going to be raining not where we have our farms. It's going to be raining somewhere else. It's going to be raining in Canada, right? Um, okay, so, all right, the the rain shifts up into Canada. So now, you know, the Canadians are going to be the world's food producers. Well, the only problem there is that it's raining a lot up in Canada, but, but you don't have the day length. Uh, so you don't get enough you know, sunlight so, down to the I mean, plant. you do for part of the year, you get more sunlight right. for part of the year. But point is, is that, is that our present infrastructure isn't going to match the climate anymore. And to f- adapt to that is going to be a tremendously expensive enterprise. And, as I said, people are going to die because of, of these extreme events. Because the, our infrastructure that's in place cannot support them based well, on it's, the climate. Well, it's, you know... Um, or can't protect them. Yeah, I mean, it's... People are going to have to move. We're going to have to get out of the way. We're going to have to re-engineer what we have to be able to withstand a more extreme atmosphere, more extreme weather events, bigger floods. You know, if a 100-year flood becomes a 20-year flood... That's that's unsustainable. I mean, you can put up with something that happens once every hundred years. Right. Um, it's it's not fun for the people who happen to be there when it happens. But <laughs> right. something that happens every twenty years or every ten years, you 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 just eventually, well, quickly, you just say, I can't do this anymore. Right. And so you know, our choice is either we we try and and slow it down. We're not going to stop it. There's too much carbon in the system already. It's going to get warmer. But we can we can try and keep it to manageable levels. Or we can let it happen and, and, and just say, well, we're, you know, we'll just have to deal with it. And I don't think the second option is a particularly good one. Again, I think it's, it's going to be much worse and, and a lot more people are going to get hurt uh, if, we, if we don't try and slow it down. And so, we know how to slow it down. You know, we need to decarbonize our, our energy production. So talk to me about what that looks like. And, and, and this, this sort of... Uh I guess dovetails nicely into the story of when I just walked into the house 
earlier today and I looked up on the roof and I saw something solar new. Panels, so, yeah. yeah. So you have solar panels installed yeah. on the installed on the roof now. Yeah. And so half of our power consumption will be supplied by the sun as soon as they turn the things on. And and you know, they'll be doing, you know, they're good for twenty years. So solar, wind, other forms Whatever you you know, anything you can you can do. Um, the less carbon we produce, the better. Right. And you know, solar is there's no reason why most houses couldn't have solar panels. Okay. You know, it's just you have to make the investment. Right. The initial investment sure. up front. Do you think that a lot of people just aren't willing to do that or don't know enough about the benefits well, of it's, solar? Well, it's or? one of those things where, you know, the more people that that want it, the cheaper it gets. You know, the... Right. You the know, the, the economic of, model of it, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, flat screen TVs, you know, they were ridiculously <laughs> expensive, Right. For a long time, now and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, bucks. like like boom, you know, they 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 figured out some technological problems, and you know, manufacturing, they figured out how to manufacture them more cheap, manufacture them more cheaply, and once demand kicked in, you know, it just you had this sort of exponential decrease in the in the cost. Are you optimistic about uh, the rate at which we're adopting clean energy, or do you think that we need to do much more? Or well, I, th- you know, it's it, it's ups and downs. Right now, our country, the United States, which is supposed to be the world leader in things that are, you know, important to do, um, we're we're definitely the laggards. I mean, we're we're actually more of a problem than the solution, at least at the federal level. But you know, this may be one of those problems that isn't solved from the top down. This may be one of those things that's solved from the bottom up by by states like New York State and California who say, hey, you know, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna become sustainable. We're gonna generate clean energy. We we don't wanna pollute our environment. Okay. Right? Um, you know, California is one of the largest economies in the world. And, you know, even if the United States is not a leader in moving to non carbon sources of energy, if California is, that means a lot. Right. If New York is, that means a lot. Right. And, you know, I mean, if, if people like me put solar panels on their roof, it helps. Right. Every, every little bit. Yeah. So let me shift real quick and, um, and ask when, when we were talking before we did the interview, um, you had mentioned that, that you would like to speak about or at least had some things to talk about fringe science. Mm. And, and as we're on the topic of climate change, I figured this would, there, there wouldn't be a better time to, to speak about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of fringe science around climate change. So um, what exactly is fringe science for those well, that don't know? I don't know. I mean, uh, I think fringe science is when you have people who, who claim the mantle of scientific authority but, but are on the fringes of whatever the particular consensus is or outside of the consensus. You know, every, every scientific community has people on the fringe, people who, for one reason or another, don't accept the consensus. And sometimes that's good, you know. I mean, sometimes, you know, the people who don't accept the consensus make great discoveries and change right, our they're view the ones of the world. Pushing you know? so the envelope in the lab. Einstein didn't accept the consensus and came up <laughs> right. with a fundamentally new way of, of viewing the structure of the universe. And, and by the way, he was right. <laughs> and Galileo and, and, you know, Copernicus. Newton and, and all of them. Yeah. Newton. And, but those guys are pretty rare. Usually the people who reject the consensus of the scientific community um, are wrong. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, if you're a betting person, you might be careful who, who you get behind. Right. Um, and the, the issue with climate change is that there's a very well-funded mechanism for generating fringe science. And, and what does that look like? Um, that looks like um, 
a lot of very well-funded political entities, think tanks like the Heritage Institute, um, fossil fuel companies like Exxon, you know, putting money into paying people to come out as spokespeople against the scientific consensus on climate change. And, and their main objective is to, is to create doubt, is to cast doubt, is to get people to doubt or to question whether climate change is actually happening or if it is happening, whether it's something we can do anything about. And if we can do something about it, um, should we? Should we, should we invest the money and the energy into doing something about it? So if you can cast doubt on those things, doubt leads to political inaction. Right. And political inaction preserves the status quo. And we keep using fossil fuel. And, you know, if you're, if you're Exxon, you're sitting on billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of fossil fuel, which is still in the ground. They're called reserves. And as long as people are using fossil fuel and fossil fuel is valuable, those reserves are valuable. And basically that value is counted, you know, towards the value of your company. Uh, if we cut back on our use of fossil fuels, the value of those reserves drops precipitously and the value, your value drops precipitously. So right. anything you can do to slow down a shift away from uh, carbon fuels is is going to be beneficial to certain certain companies and certain individuals. Um, and, and I mean, some people are uh, don't like the whole issue of climate change or, or, or want to cast down on it for purely ideological reasons. The idea that we need to do something about climate change, they associate that with government control. Like the government's going to tell us what to do. It's going to tell us, you know, huh. what kind of cars we can drive and, and how we can generate energy. And, and we don't, you know, regulation. We don't, want, we don't want the government regulating us. And so climate change is just an excuse to give the government more control over our lives. So there, there's, a whole, there's a whole sort of political identity that, that, that sees right. climate change as a threat to that political identity. Right. And it's hard, it's hard to get around that, especially when it's, when it's very well funded. But, but I, I, as I tell my students, you know, there's a whole history of industry spending large amounts of money to attack a scientific consensus that is counter to, their, to that industry's profitability. So um, we saw it—actually, uh, we, we were talking about lead before. So when, when the initial studies were done— that demonstrated that lead was toxic, that lead lowered the IQs of children who were exposed to it, the lead industry went after the doctors who did those studies with everything they had. They tried to get them fired. They dragged them into court. They tried to discredit them. They tried to discredit their research. Wow. And they, I, they, try, they tried to manufacture doubt. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't that well documented on uh, the, well, it used to be Carl Sagan's series, but when Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah, did he Cosmos, did, there was, they did a whole yeah, episode he did a, on he lead. did a thing on it. I've, I've read some uh, really interesting articles about it. Yeah. So you mentioned before doubt, and, and I think that that plays a very key role where I think that a lot of people don't realize that when these fringe scientists come on television, sometimes their goal isn't even to convince you that they're right. Their goal is to just convince some people like, oh, maybe there is. They just want to manufacture doubt. Like they, you know, that, that, well, we're not sure. We're not 100% sure. Right. We're not 90% sure. Now, um, and so we, we don't want to do anything. What, we, we, you know, don't, it's, it's, too, it's too soon. We don't know yet. We, don't, we, you know, we need to wait. We need, we need more evidence. We need more. And and we don't need more evidence. And, and, and I do, <laughs> right. And I, I don't think that some of these scientists and some of these companies even realize the long term damage that they're doing in reducing well, the public the the overall public's 
faith in science, that their belief in science, or their at least their respect for experts. I feel like there's just this drop off, and now all science has been lumped into oh, it's just these guys on TV just, saying this and that and that. It's and just it's, it's just another opinion, right? It's and it's just so, so damaging because it discredits the entire science. <laughs> you know, the scientists aren't perfect, and the scientific enterprise isn't perfect, and it makes mistakes. But but it it's it's the best way to figure out what really is and what really works that we've ever discovered. And its successes, I, I would argue, far outnumber its failures. The, the proof of the effectiveness of, of a scientific approach to learning about the world is technology. Right. It's Science all around us. Science is the underpinning of technology. So, you know, iPhones, iPhones work not because we believe that they should work. iPhones work because <laughs> of a tremendous amount of applied science that's gone into, into making them. You know, our medicine is based on, on a lot of careful scientific work. And, you know, we do get it wrong, and we do produce studies that turn out not to be true. But the nice thing about science is that it's a self-correcting enterprise. Um, the way you, you become a success as a scientist is you prove that some other scientist was wrong. Hopefully right. your PhD advisor. Right. And, and I think that's an important point to, for the public to realize that they might not is that that is yeah. one of the best ways to get ahead in science. Sure. And also, I mean, I have to tell you that, that I, I know a lot of scientists, um, not just paleontologists, but I know scientists in, in biology and chemistry. And my experience is that, that what motivates most scientists is they want to be right. right. They want it, you know, not, they don't want, they want to convince everybody else that they're right. They want to know that they're right, that they discovered something that's real and true. And yeah, okay, there are, there are some scientists who, who do fraudulent science to get, to get ahead, to get promoted, to get a grant. Um, you know, that happens. I mean, we're, you know, we're not, we're all human. We're not saints. Yeah. But by and large, we are motivi motivated by a desire to figure things out. And that's why we become scientists. You do not become a climatologist to become rich. Right. Don't work that way. <laughs> I mean, you know, even, you know, even if you get a lot of NSF grants, you're not getting rich off of NSF grants. What the grants are paying for is, is the ability for you to keep doing your science. Right. So you mentioned being friends with a lot of scientists and everything. One of my last questions here, where do you see yourself in ten year, in five, ten years in the future? Where, where is your science journey going to take you next? Are, are, are you happy with where you're at? You enjoy what you're doing? You want to keep doing it? Well, or is I'm, there other areas of interest for you? I mean, I'm, I'm in a sort of a peculiar situation. I teach at an undergraduate institution, a private, you know, private university, Hofstra University. And um, at this point, my primary role as a scientist is to try and find ways to engage my undergraduate students in scientific research. Okay. And so that might involve some paleontology, and I've, I've had a student who just graduated who spent his, uh, he graduated early, but he spent three years um, working with me on a project looking at masses of mineral that people had decided were fossilized dinosaur poop called coprolites. Okay. And... We got a hold of a bunch of these things from a collector out in Utah, and, and he did every you know, form of analysis we could think of uh, to look for any, any evidence of organic material, chopped up plant bits. I mean, these look like fossilized cow pies, basically. Right. And, and we couldn't find any definitive evidence that they were what people were saying they, they were. So that's a, that's a paleontology slash geochemistry project, of, you know, kind of up my, my alley, not, not really 
But um, I was out yesterday with two high school students sampling groundwater on the North Shore of Long Island for a project that one of them was doing. So really? I end up doing all kinds of stuff. And, and I'm, my, my goal at this point is just to keep these kids busy learning how to be research scientists and, and, and hopefully developing a passion for it so they will go out and, uh, in, you know, and, and have, have good careers as scientists. A lot of my students end up uh, in the environmental field. Um, I have a lot of former students who are working on Long Island, um, working to clean up the water supply of Long Island and, and, and keep, it, keep it clean. Um, I have a lot of former students who are teachers, who are science teachers, or elementary school science teachers. And I have some former students who've gone off to careers in, in academia. Well, well listen, I, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I, I did want to thank you for coming on. This is a conversation I've actually been looking forward to, oh, good. specifically just because you're a wealth of knowledge on all this stuff. Um, we've uh, known each other for quite some time now sure. um, as, as acquaintances, but um, I'm honored to call you a friend. Thank you very much for oh, coming my on pleasure. the podcast. I, T- tell everybody where they can find you. Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Are you out there in the world? Or Oh, I yeah, I have, a, face, keep... I have a Facebook page. Um, I have a I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it very much. Uh, no, but, yeah, mostly I tweet stuff for Hofstra University. Okay. Um, you, you know, if you Google Brett Bennington, uh, you, I'll pop up. Well, Dr. Bennington, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, and I hope to see you again soon. My pleasure. We're going to wrap it up for today, and thank you guys so much for joining us. All right, guys, thank you for joining me this week for the Jason Juliet Podcast. I would like to give a huge thank you to my guest, Dr. Brett Bennington. Whew, what a conversation with that man. Uh, just a brilliant guy. It was, uh, it was great to get to talk to him. Please join me next week. My guest is Dr. Shanoa Medina. She is just a wonderfully articulate, well-spoken young woman who just got out of med school, and we have a great conversation. It was just wonderful to hear her perspective of med school and being a doctor because I've spent the past four years in college thinking about nursing. And so, so this was a really good conversation for me. So I hope you guys enjoy that next week. In the meantime, you can find me at jasonjuliet.com. I am on iTunes, which is now Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, You can look for me at Jason J Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, and I will set up my Twitter eventually. I do. I do promise that. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.